You know, most problems in healthcare are fixed already. Primary care is already cured on the fringes. Reversing burnout, physician shortages, bad business models, forced buyouts, factory medicine, high deductible insurance that squeezes the docs and is totally inaccessible to most of the employees. The big squeeze is always on for docs. It's the acceleration of cost and the deceleration of reimbursements. I want you to meet those on this show that are making a difference with host Ron Barshop, CEO of Beacon Clinics. That's me. So direct primary care by the numbers is so impressive. We know that through QLiance data, which was a couple of years ago, 80% of surgeries are lessened because of a direct primary care relationship. 66% of radiology ordered drops. Um, we lose 62% of specialist visits because of the upstream visits with primary care. 59% of ER visits drop. 30% of hospital stays less. And we have an increase of 115% primary care visits when care is free, paid by employers. Direct primary care works. The average savings at QLiance was $1,486 per member savings, which more than pays for the cost of the member. Expedia eliminated 20% of their overall spend with other data we have from other companies. Union Hospital, 16.6% year one, 25% year two. Digital Globe saved the cost of the next Terra Health during the monthly membership fee. Digital Globe saved $99 per member, which is more than the cost of the next Terra Health membership fee. And the city of Arvada, 22 to 28% according to Paladina Health. We could go on and on like this, and a lot of physicians are calling for, let's do some peer-based reviews of this cost to see if it's real or if it's fake. And the reality is at Harvard Business School, you're going to see case studies. At Harvard Medical School, you're going to see peer-reviewed studies. They're the same thing, folks. In business, they're widely accepted as case studies. And in healthcare, we widely accept peer-reviewed studies. They're the same thing in America, just from two different perspectives. Look, the bottom line about direct primary care is costs drop when care is friction-free. That means co-pays and deductibles and factory medicine vibes and complex medications and premiums disappear. And you have a team approach case management system, which is what our guest has today with who he has trained over the last 13 to 14 years. You have cornfield maze navigation and getting through this transaction care that we've created in America uh, with direct primary care, and you have truth-based answers in your clinical visit with your doctor versus misinformation you're getting from the internet. And finally, you have engaging doctors and nurses who are no longer burned out. Direct primary care conferences are the happiest in medical America. And most importantly, and I think where direct primary care is going to be going in the next 10 years, is to give a customer experience, give them back the power, knowing what to do next for the 99% of their life that they're not with their care team. Today, we have a pioneer of 13 years history with direct primary care, Dr. Brian Forrest, who is not only an associate professor at UNC Chapel Hill School of Medicine, go Tar Heels, and he's also a CEO and founder of Access Healthcare Direct, which has been empowering physicians across the country in 34 states since 2007, consulting with hundreds of physicians on how to get into the business. He's won a ton of awards, but the one that sounded really interesting was in 2018, he won the Changemaker in Medicine, awarded by Medical Economics Magazine a couple of years ago. Welcome to the show, Brian Forrest. 
Thanks a bunch for uh, having me on. I appreciate you guys having me on the show. I, I will correct uh, one thing. I'm, I'm actually older than, than you made it sound. I've been doing direct primary care now for almost 20 years. Uh, we didn't start teaching people about it until probably around 2007. Uh, but we actually uh, founded the, the company in 2001. So we are, we are going on our 20th year here very, very shortly. You know, you, you've, you've had a unique viewpoint in 20 years then to see models that have risen and failed, models that have risen and morphed into something else. I think of Iora Health, models that have sort of been blends of other, you know, maybe fee-for-service plus DPC, which just sounds like a terrible idea for a doctor. What, what have you seen that actually works? Is it rural care that DPC works best in? Is it the, you know, staying away from the cities and the rich neighborhoods? What, I've, I've seen you blog about different things that you think actually are. What makes DPC work in America? Well, the truth is that uh, direct primary care is flexible. So it's, it's a flexible model. So it, it will work in most areas. Uh, I've seen it be very successful in really, really rural parts of uh, the country. I've seen it be very successful in sort of suburban areas. Uh, I've seen it be uh, successful in urban areas. Interestingly, I think one of the big differences between uh, direct primary care and concierge medicine is that concierge medicine is something that can be successful in a really, really affluent area. You know, you could have a, a concierge medicine practice in Beverly Hills, whereas direct primary care really doesn't fly as well there. So I always think of it as sort of, you know, concierge medicine is like a Ferrari. Most people can't afford it and don't necessarily need it. Direct primary care is like a late model Honda. Everybody can afford it and everybody needs reliable transportation. And so we're sort of like the, the, that quality care with that access at a price that most people can tolerate. So the interesting thing is probably the, the least likely place for direct primary care to, to succeed is a super affluent community. Um, most everywhere else in America, as long as there's uh, patients around in a community, even if it's rural, it can be very successful. Why has it not been universally successful? Were people charging too little? Were they going after the wrong markets? I mean, we've had a lot of risen and failure eagles, you know, that just sort of flew brightly in the sun for a year or two and then disappeared. What do you think is going on with the models that don't work? I think there's been a, a couple of common denominators for the, the failures. And the biggest one, if, if you wanted to, to boil it all down to one thing, it's when people pollute the model. You know, it's, it's a very simple model if you execute it that way. And, and what I would I'll give you the example of is, uh, it's a low overhead practice model. So you have, you know, typically a, a good DPC practice is going to have lower than 20% overhead. The monthly fee is uh, almost always going to be under $100 a month. You're also going to have a fairly tight staff, usually a one-to-one -one ratio with staff and providers. And you typically don't file any insurance at all. And if you look at the failures, most of the failures have been people that either tried to hybridize their practice where they kept some insurance and they tried to be direct primary care for, for the other part of their practice. Because what happens when you do that is that you still have the overhead associated with a normal insurance practice. You still have to have that four additional full-time employees if you're filing and uh, submitting codes, whereas in DPC you don't. And your revenue, if you try to hybridize, your overall revenue is lower yet you're maintaining that high overhead. So uh, when we look at corporate models, uh, you know, Q-Lions was very successful uh, with businesses 
when they took on 40,000 Medicaid patients and tried to bend the model. I know, I know the folks there quite well who started that. They did not want to do some of the things that, uh, you know, Medicaid wanted them to do, like, you know, basically code, even though they weren't billing Medicaid per visit, uh, they wanted them to start, you know, uh, having things like ghost claims, where you're basically doing all the paperwork and all the bureaucracy, even though you're not filing the claim. And so whenever any of these models try to look too much like a regular insurance practice, that's when they're unsuccessful. When they keep their overhead low, uh, keep their, their pricing structure fairly simple, then they're very successful. And, you know, you made the point earlier about employers. My personal practice, we've worked with employers where I've had 500 patients from one employer, uh, but nationally, in terms of our network, we've sort of helped these uh, practices develop over the years in all these different states. And one of the things we do now is help sort of the employers find these uh, local areas of direct primary care they can directly contract with. Um, in fact, just yesterday, we were discussing with an employer uh, in the Charlotte area in North Carolina. This is a, a multi-state employer, and they're going to work with about eight of our practices in the Charlotte area. And each of those practices is probably going to get roughly, you know, 100 patients where the employer's paying the monthly fee. It's a self-funded employer, so their price comes down dramatically. Uh, and a lot of times those guys can save 60 to 70% on their healthcare spend. Now, you have to be careful because some people have the idea that with direct primary care, the employers directly contracting with the practice is the largest part of the practice. And generally speaking, it's not. So for, for direct primary care in general, usually the employer patient base represents about 10% uh, of the patients, which means 90% of those patients are, you know, sort of grassroots, organic uh, customers that came from the community around the practice. It's not, not usually built totally from employer-based patients. So somebody's coming to you. Well, first of all, how large is your network? You have several hundred? Uh, yeah, several hundred. Uh, I don't keep a, an exact count because it seems like it changes every day, but uh, it's like 34 states. Uh, some states may have as many as, uh, you know, 25 or 30 practices. Other states may only have one or two, but it's, uh, it's really come together. We're a nice group of folks that uh, we sort of collegially work together to try to do what's best for patients and keep our overhead down and that type of thing. If I wanted to look for Access Healthcare's network, how would I find it? Is Do I just go to my uh, DPC map in Houston, Texas and see how many of, I mean, are they called Access Healthcare in Houston, Texas? Uh, yes, uh, that's a great question. So we're not, a fran we're not a franchise, although, you know, back in 2005, I'll never forget there were lots of people after we wrote our first article about the model and people started learning about it. People said, you should franchise that. And I really didn't want it to be a franchise because the beauty of it is it allows doctors to be independent. And, you know, practicing medicine is not a cookie cutter art. So we didn't want, you know, everybody's waiting room to have the same colors and look the same. So rather than being a franchise, we encourage people to have different names. So there are some practices in our network that took on similar names like Access Medicine or things like that. But most of them came up with their own names. They're totally independent. Uh, we don't set any pricing structure. We, we have sort of guidelines of what we suggest will be successful, uh, but everybody has their own individual business policies and, and practices and that type of thing. Um, there's a lot of commonality, but uh, it's definitely individuals within the network. Uh, so you ask about a, a site where people can find that. 
There's a few different ones. Probably the easiest one that we have is uh, if they go to accesshealthcaredirect.com, uh, at that site, there's actually a mapper. It says find a DPC doc and you can click on that. We also have some apps uh, as well uh, that are in the iTunes store and Google that help you find a doc. But probably for right now, that website would be the easiest place to find doctors in our network who are accepting new patients. Um, so that's meant for, you know, a patient goes and they say, hey, I, I like direct primary care. I want to find a doctor like that. If they go to accesshealthcaredirect.com, they look for that, you know, find a doctor. They're going to find doctors on there who are taking new patients who are working in this month. Very nice. And then what I, it seems you're, you have the training or a class that you'll do and you're going to give them access to your malpractice insurance company and you have access to your, right. you purchasing right. uh, your supplies yeah. from, whether it's Office Depot or Amazon and they're getting the same discount you're getting. So you're passing on almost like a purchasing organization, your benefits that you're getting at the, as a network to your new members that are joining the, the network. Is that, is that about how it works? That's, that's exactly right. And, and we never intended to do that. This, this grew up very grassroots. I mean, the, uh, you know, the first year those articles started coming out, we would get like 200 emails a day from doctors saying, can I come spend a day with you at your practice? And so we said, sure. And so people started flying in and they would spend the day here. Uh, we didn't charge a fee or anything for like a year and then realized that it was taking 20% of my time training doctors. So we figured, okay, we're going to charge a fee, but we're going to add some services. So we hired a legal team of, of experts with, uh, you know, Medicare compliance and contracting and things like that to help out practices. We started writing up business plans for them and, and strategic plans for how they would open their practice, helping them consulting on their website design and everything else. But you're right. We also realized there was a need for keeping the overhead low. Um, so since we already had contracts with national labs um, national medical suppliers and things like that, we essentially created a group purchasing organization for the network so that all of those practices that were in the network could join in those savings. And it's really been useful. Like the most recent thing we did was we got a national discount on uh, malpractice insurance. You know, up until a year or two ago, if you were a direct primary care physician, the actuarial data says you're much less likely to get sued for malpractice in this model However, the malpractice companies were charging the same thing. So I approached uh, some malpractice companies and said, hey, we're DPC docs. You know, we spend more time with patients. We're less burned out. We're less likely to make mistakes, according to actuarial data anyway. Uh, we're less likely to get sued. So what do you guys think about a discount? So they agreed to that. And so now nationally, anybody in the network, all they have to do, even if it's their existing company, they go and they basically tell them they're part of this program and they instantly get, you know, hundreds of dollars off of their malpractice premium just because they're part of the network. So we, we've sort of added services over the years based on what people requested and what we thought would be useful for people to help them be successful. Well, I'm on your website and I'm confused about something, Brian. It's, you know, join the network. Membership is free. I don't see your economic model here other than, you know, you're like a great guy to drop from heaven. I'm, I'm trying to figure <laughs> this thing out. So yes, our, our network model is that we try to keep the uh, cost as low as possible for anybody that's interested in resources we provide. So uh, existing direct primary care practices that want to join the network, uh, it is free for them to join. And, th and the reason for that is that we take uh, the fees from employers that are interested in contracting directly with practices, and we use that to pay for our sort of overhead cost uh, now. We did used to charge a monthly membership fee and we had to do that, you know, to staff up and have the lawyers and things that we have on staff. And the other thing we charge for as a network is the boot camp fee for direct primary care boot camp. 
you know, for the first year we didn't charge anything for that, but we just felt like we had to do something. We were taking, you know, 12 hours or so uh, of time and we were putting together business plans and strategic plans for practices. So we charged $2,500 for that boot camp, which is an all day training session. We train the staff for the practice as well if they have medical assistance and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, if you're already an existing practice or if you feel like you don't need any mentorship or, you know, one-on-one -on -one training, you can join the network absolutely for free as long as you're willing to see patients from employers and generally all DPC docs want patients. So that's, that's easy for them. I'm confused about something though. You said, and maybe I misunderstood you that employers are paying the $2,500 fee. No, 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 no. Uh, the, yeah, no, no, no. Okay. I, no, not for boot camp. Well, well that, that has happened again. It's been, we've been doing this a long time. So, you know, we have had employers that have paid for doctors uh, boot camp fee. Uh, usually that's been uh, hospital systems that were, healthcare systems that they wanted to start a direct primary care practice uh, within their healthcare system and they would pay for the boot camp fee. But typically the employers pay the network fee for people who just want to join the network. So let's say somebody says, you know, I'd like to join the network. I want to, you know, if you've got employers who want to send us patients, I'd be glad to see them. Well, the employers say, look, for anybody that we send to one of those practices, We'll pay the network a very small fee, and that helps offset the cost that we have for sort of administration of the network. Okay. All right. Well, I appreciate that a lot better than the first thing I misunderstood. So if we're talking about 1,200 practices in America, which is what the map says, uh, roughly 2,000 doctors is my guess, because many of the clinics have more than one doctor or nurse uh, involved or PA involved. I'm thinking to myself, well, that's not even moving the dial on the percentages of doctors, even though it looks like two or 3%. 20 years to get to two or 3% is not like a gigantic earthquake of a change. What is it gonna to take to get DPC to really become a major player in primary care? And is it, is it a model that's out there that we know of today? That's a great question. So people ask me all the time, they say, well, why, why isn't everybody doing this? Well, the truth is the growth rate is a lot faster than you think. Because remember, uh, you know, 20 years ago, it was just me. And almost nobody knew anything about it until around 2005. In 2005, there were still only about five practices nationally. In 2007 into the 2009 range, uh, we wrote a lot of articles, and there was uh, one in particular called Breaking Even on Four Patients a Day that came out in Family Practice Management. And ever since then, the number of practices has doubled each year. You know, we were uh, roughly at 600 practices total in the country, you know, 18 months ago. That mapper may show 1,200, but the truth is there's more than that because those are just ones that have been identified. There's pretty good evidence that it's doubling about every year. And if you look at, if we look at uh, adoption of electronic health records as an example, 20 years ago, nobody was using an electronic health record. And now 99% do. But if you look at the growth rate of direct primary care among independent doctors since 2009, it is a faster growth rate than EHR adoption. So I do think we're, we're seeing a trend that for independent doctors, uh, I think you are going to see a lot of people doing it. I think it is the right model for that. It's, it's hard for somebody in an institution who's employed, right, to do it. It's hard for institutions since they take insurance, they have insurance contracts to make it work. I think what you're going to see is as more doctors leave the hospital systems and the institutions and, that want to go out and do independent practice and new residents out of training want to do practice, you're going to see the model continue to grow. And I think it's honestly going to be the, the dominant 
model in our independent physician workforce nationally. From your mouth to God's ears, as my rabbi would say, hey, I talked to Tom Banning, who is the executive director of the Texas Association of Family Physicians, and uh, we had lunch about a couple of weeks ago, and he is speaking pretty much to all of the family practice residents that are getting ready to get into the workforce. And guess what model they're most interested in? I would assume direct primary care. How did you know that? That's amazing. 80%. How about that? What's interesting is I actually know Tom uh, and have spoken at events he's been at before. And uh, he told me a couple years ago that Texas was one of the fastest growing markets for direct primary care. Here's an interesting statistic for you. We've done uh, polls for residents that have uh, you know, gone into primary care to family medicine. And if you ask them why they decided to go into primary care, fully 10% of those residents said the only reason they chose primary care was because of the DPC model. So for those critics who say that, you know, this, this may hurt the workforce because we have smaller patient panels, well, that's not really true because we're bringing in more workforce of enthusiastic primary caregivers, and we're also keeping people in the workforce because uh, very often somebody will come up to me and say, you know, I was about ready to retire early, and then I found the direct primary care model, and I decided to stay in it, and now I love practicing, and I'm never going to retire. You know, so if we're bringing people into the workforce and we're keeping them from exiting early due to burnout, um, I think that's really going to help overall. You mentioned burnout earlier. Just so you know, we've, we've been collecting data on practices over the last five years, and we're getting ready to publish uh, several studies, but one of those deals with burnout. And just as a teaser, uh, compared to traditional family physicians, the burnout rate is about 80% less in direct primary care practices. And we know that physicians that are less burned out provide better care with fewer medical mistakes. So I think that's one of the arguments we made to the malpractice company about getting discounts. When you're ready to come out with those studies, we're going to do a show just devoted to those studies. When you're ready to do it, we'll, we'll put it on this show. We have a lot of people interested in this subject. So let's talk about Paul Thomas is the guy that woke me up to the numbers issue that you just brought up with Plum Health. He went straight out of uh, residency into DPCs, one of the young men you're talking about, gave a TED talk, you know, just beautiful speaker, beautiful representative for the movement. But I also then, from him, was led to Kirkham Bear, and they both said the same thing about this numbers problem that is the biggest criticism, which is population health is going to suffer because 600 people doesn't work, the math doesn't work. Well, Paul said there's two issues to think about. Number one is how many PCPs are in the market? And I named a number, and he goes, no, no, what about the mid-levels as well, the extenders? And I went, oh, well, of course, now we're talking about 500,000. He said, what's 500,000 times 600 in a cohort? That's America. He got me there. I mean, the math works. And the other thing that Kirk Umber brought it to my attention, we don't have a math problem. We have an efficiency problem. When you're studying your EHR more than you're studying your patient for a 30-minute visit or really a 15-minute visit more accurately, and half of that time you're typing away, you're not, in, you know, you're not doing the, the job efficiently, basically. So because you're seeing how many patients a day, maybe five or six a day? Well, again, direct primary care is a flexible model. So I typically see 12 per day. Full patient panel uh, for me uh, is about 1,000 to 1,200. There are models where you have 600 patients. Uh, typically, I would say the average nationally is more like 800 to 1,000, uh, at least in our network. Um, and that makes the, the manpower issue even less. Uh, but again, I think that's a good point, that it is an efficiency problem. And when, you, when you're able to spend 45 minutes with a patient instead of, you know, seven or eight, 
you can optimize their care. You can make sure they're getting their prescriptions filled. You can make sure they're getting the lowest cost uh, on anything that you refer them to so they can actually afford to get it done. And that keeps people out of the hospital and it keeps them out of the emergency room. Let's disavow anybody going into DPC of any romantic notions. Um, let's talk about your fees that you charge for mom, you know, wife and the kids. And then let's talk about, I'm sorry, dad, wife and the kids. Or it could be mom, wife, the kids too, of course. We're living in America, God bless America. But we're also talking about the hours. Are you, um, instead of watching binge TV, having to answer texts all night long? No. <laughs> in fact, uh, typically I would say that uh, we get about one after hours call per month. And part of the reason for that is that patients know that we are accessible to them. And so, you know, instead of having to wait like a month to get in for an appointment, typically they know they can show up and we'll have room for them on the schedule the next morning. So they don't have to call at midnight the night before. They're like, well, I'll just go in there in the morning because I know they'll get me in and see me. And so we really don't have a problem. People, people don't abuse the access. Uh, I think that's one of the big myths that scare a lot of doctors about DPC is they think, oh my goodness, if I go into a high service model like this, patients are going to, you know, expect they can call me all weekend long and they're going to, you know, bug me after hours. And that, that's just not true. It doesn't happen. And honestly, the patients that uh, do call after hours, typically it's somebody I wanted to hear from. A lot of the telemedicine vis visits that I do after hours, I'm actually the one that scheduled them. A good example, I had a 72-year-old man who uh, had a cellulitis on his leg and, you know, we were going into the weekend and I didn't want him to go all weekend and me not take a look at his leg. So again, most people think a 72 year old guy is not going to do a telemedicine visit, but he was thrilled to death. You know, he introduced me to his two dogs. Uh, his wife uh, pointed the camera and uh, showed me his rash. And I, you know, I'm the one who initiated that sort of after hours engagement uh, rather than the patient. So we really don't find that patients abuse it. I guess you've uh, trained your boot camp attendees to blow a foghorn in the phone after 5 p.m. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so you have rashes is an interesting question. You have a consultative approach if you see a rash you don't understand. You can call somebody that has a, maybe a stronger dermatological background or somebody that has a stronger hypertension background if you have an interesting case or a stronger diabetes background. I mean, I, I know you're actually a hypertension specialist, so they'd probably go to you for that, but isn't that nice to have a, a network of people you can go to when you have an interesting problem and you want to put it out there? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's very collaborative and, and in a system where we truly are being medical colleagues instead of worrying about what institution we're with or, you know, what healthcare network we're, we're in in terms of insurance and that kind of thing, uh, people are collegial and they also have, you know, the time to, to talk. It's interesting. I've had patients tell me before that, especially the ones that, that have gone to multiple specialists, that they've never had a doctor actually take the time to talk with all their specialists and make sure we were, everybody was on the same page because their, their doctor in the past never had time to do that. They only had that seven minutes instead of, you know, 45 to an hour. And I've even had, had times where I'd have patients in the room and I'd say, you know what, let me, go, let me go call the specialist and we'll talk to them together on the phone. And there's just no time to do things like that that's really good collaborative medicine in the fee-for-service sort of rushed model. I have um, a theory about value-based care. I, one of the people I respect in Texas told me that VBC, value-based care, is really at the top of the food chain for where primary care is going. And then uh, DPC, direct primary care, is second in line, and then all the rest you know, follows fee-for-service. But I challenged him and I said, VBC is on a capitation model. That means in fancy words, 
they're getting X per member, X per patient. And that has been a road to disaster. If you look at MRIs or basically anything in America, the capitation model is just, we'll lower it next month and we'll lower it next month and we'll lower it next year and we'll lower it next year. And it's just basically a hammering that's a slow death. Do you agree that the capitation models are essentially giving the power to, you know, the insurance companies and the federal government? Yeah, I think that, that that's exactly the problem is that in any of the models where basically somebody else tells you what you're going to charge or somebody else tells you about how the relationship with your patient's going to be and you don't have any control over that, they're going to continually sort of exploit it. Fee-for-service or value-based care, you know, insurance companies are always going to try to push that number down every year. With the accountable care organization model, I told people from the beginning, I'm like, look, they're going to pay you more if you get under the limbo bar a little bit this year. But guess what? Every year that limbo bar gets lower and lower. And at some point you're flat on the ground. And when they can't give you those bonus payments for, you know, quote unquote value-based care, then you're back where you were or behind because what they've done is they've decreased your fee-for-service payments while they were giving you those value-based bonuses. And once you can't achieve the metrics for the value-based bonuses anymore, uh, you're actually, they've got you right where they want you. They've got you at a, a much lower fee-for-service rate. So, you know, I think truly direct primary care is a value-based model. It's, it's, the real, it's, it's the real value-based care because it's the value that patients and employers put on the relationship between the patient and the physician, uh, which is where we get most of the clinical care done, not at the administrator's office or at the insurance company. I have a question about COVID-19. This is so much in the news, and we want to put this out there as soon as we do this interview. So this, we hope, will be out there today or tomorrow. But we're in the middle of March right now, and the president was just on TV, and well-respected epidemiologists and public health experts are basically saying, this is a public disaster. We already know it's an economic disaster in the making. Tell us what you're seeing in North Carolina from your perspective of, uh, as a primary care physician. Uh, and, you know, sort of the master of the universe of a much larger network. What are you, what are you seeing that we need to be aware of in the primary care world? Well, you know, it, it's been really interesting. There's been a lot of changes even in the last week. You know, a week ago, we were not where we are now. We've, we've had, you know, an outbreak here uh, in the county where my practice is. Uh, so things have changed a lot. First, I would say that I think a lot of primary care practices are going to be uh, pushed towards wanting to do virtual visits. They're going to want to make contact with people without having to see them face-to-face in the office because that may actually increase the risk of contagion, especially to older adults. I mean, the, the last thing I want is for my, you know, hypertensive, high cholesterol, diabetic patient who's 70 years old to come in and see me for a follow-up appointment in a practice where coronavirus could have been hanging in the air for three hours. Um, so we, we're currently uh, working on policies and things that we're going to send out uh, just tomorrow uh, to patients, basically notifying them of how we're going to be uh, taking care of them uh, through this. The interesting thing is, you know, for direct primary care patients, it's going to be terrific in some ways because their doctors were already willing to embrace technology and reach out to them virtually. And a lot of direct primary care physicians don't charge for telemedicine visits. Uh, they just sort of include it in their monthly membership. But uh, good luck to you if you're a patient in an insurance practice and you're trying to see a physician and they aren't having office visits and office visits are the primary way they get paid. It's going to be very difficult, I think, for fee-for-service patients to access care 
in the near future. And I think that the, the DPC community is actually going to be a little better suited to handle it because we're, we're used to engaging patients wherever they are, you know, whether that's at their home or on the phone or, you know, however we do that, because uh, we're sort of a, we're available to them on a retainer basis. Uh, we don't have to, to have them come through the door uh, to keep our revenue model going. Let's talk about the advice you would give a patient or a doctor that works in your network to give a patient if they feel sort of symptomatic and then actually symptomatic. They're having the shortness of breath. They're having the sore throat. They're having all the indications of a really severe flu. What are you going to tell that doctor to tell the patients? Well, that's a great question. And in fact, I got asked that just today. I was on a network call earlier today. Uh, with four network doctors, and that was the question they put to me. They said, literally, we want you to send us a copy of what you're sending out to your patient. <laughs> and I told them I was, you know, I wasn't uh, making it up myself. I was looking at a lot of resources I got from other other physicians in the area. Uh, but essentially, you know, I think the strategy we're adopting is we're trying to keep the people that are highest risk away from contact, not only with uh, crowds, but also with medical care. We want to keep those vulnerable populations uh, out of our office. Uh, so we're going to be notifying them that, you know, if you're in that risk group, that uh, if you've got a follow-up appointment, we're going to be moving it three months forward. We're just automatically going to take your appointments and shift them three months forward, and we'll reevaluate that as time goes by. And for the patients who are younger than that vulnerable population, if they call us and say, you know, I've got flu-like symptoms, but I'm feeling okay, I'm not short of breath, we're probably going to tell them they're better off staying at home and not coming into the office. If they tell us they're short of breath, well then, by definition, they've got something they have to be evaluated for. And given the, the possible prevalence in the community of COVID-19, we're probably gonna direct them to go to a hospital if they're short of breath and have those symptoms because they're gonna be somebody that needs to be tested immediately and they may need uh, respiratory support. Uh, so we're, the, most of the patients we're actually gonna encourage to come in, at least for the, the next uh, few weeks, are going to be people who don't have those respiratory symptoms, who aren't sick enough that they need to go to the hospital, and who aren't in a vulnerable population. You know, if you're a 40-year-old who sprains your ankle, uh, we're probably going to be seeing you in the office. Uh, but if you're a 70-year-old who needs to come in for a diabetes follow-up, we're going to be sort of pushing that down the road. So that's generally the, the strategy that, that we're adopting to sort of protect the patients as much as possible and still provide access for those who are lower risk. I think you said something important. If you do have this and you have help at home, you're not going to get much better help at a hospital. You might as well just stay at home and not spread, right? I mean, going to a hospital. You That's a great point. You know, if, if, if you, even if you have uh, the flu or even if you have COVID-19 coronavirus, if it's not bad enough uh, that you're going to need like respiratory support, like from a hospital, you're much better off to stay at home, hydrate, make sure your nutrition is good and take care of yourself at home than get out and possibly get exposed to something else. I think that's gonna be the, the safest way to handle it. Good sound advice, Brian, thank you. Um, do you have concern over critical medicines? There's some, something like 156 that are already in short supply in America. We're getting them from India and China primarily, and that supply chain is broken. What happens when uh, renal failure starts because we don't have the medications for 600,000 people that are uh, reliant on those medications? Uh, Ron, I think you're right. I think it's a, it's a huge problem. I think that uh, if anything, this is exposing our vulnerability to supply chain, not only for medications, but, but other technologies. 
And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that there's enough stock and there's enough, uh, you know, regulatory loosening uh, to sort of speed up the supply chain that we're not going to have true shortages uh, that are life threatening. Uh, but if we got into a situation, for example, where, you know, a patient with uh, diabetes couldn't get their insulin, uh, you know, that's what it would be. It would be, it would be a life endangering shortage of medication. So, you know, in the same way that we talk about being, you know, uh, fossil fuel independent, uh, we need to think about, you know, what's more critical to, uh, to our daily life. And for a lot of people, medication is more critical to their daily life than fossil fuels. So, you know, looking at trying as much as we can to become independent in terms of our medication supply is a good idea. I know that, you know, a lot of uh, direct primary care physicians actually stock medicines in their offices and dispense from the office so that they can keep patients from having to go to the pharmacy. I know that we do that. We, we keep medicines uh, here. So, you know, even if we do mail orders, because sometimes mail order is a great option. That way you don't have to go to a pharmacy. And mail order pharmacies a lot of times have a better chance of having something. But you always worry about that first dose. So if somebody's here in my office today, and let's say they need an antibiotic, and I order it from a mail order company, and it's not going to get there till tomorrow, what I do is I keep those first doses in the office. So I can just hand that dose to the patient while they're here get them started. And that way they're not going to have any kind of delay in getting their medical care, whether it's mail order or whether there is a short supply. If somebody was to come in tomorrow and they needed something and we found out their pharmacy couldn't get it, I would probably just give them whatever I could, could scrounge up at the office. Yeah. In Texas, I'm exaggerating when I say this, but in Texas, they'll put you in handcuffs if you try to dispense medications. Yeah, it is a problem there. You're right. There, there are some regulatory uh, issues in some states with uh, dispensing from the office for sure. This is just such a fascinating discussion, and we didn't really get to touch but 10% of it. I'd like to do this again sometime soon. We really learn a lot from people that are the George Washington of a brand new movement. You know, you know what nobody's tracking, Brian? Nobody's tracking how much direct contracting is going on in America. So we know Walmart is direct contracting now with centers of excellence. So they're going to surgery centers. They're going directly to imaging, to, uh, of course, pharmacy. They have access to uh, wholesale rates. Anytime somebody does that, the costs drop. Walmart saved a billion dollars on a $4 billion spend. That's a lot of money. That's uh, equivalent of 1,500 stores they would have had to open last year with their margins. So nobody's tracking how many employees in America. We know half a million or so, or maybe to closer to a million, are direct primary care patients and members. We don't have any idea how many are direct contracting through the likes of Walmart, do we? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that number. And I think that you have to also add, you, you mentioned Paladina earlier. You know, there's a lot of on-site clinics uh, and on-site clinics sort of counting that too, because that's direct contracting just, uh, you know, on-site. So I, I don't know what that number is. I know that it's a lot more than people think. I mean, uh, just two weeks ago, uh, we brought on an employer with 44,000 people that's going to be spread out across the network. I mean, when, when an employer gives you that many patients, obviously they have a lot of faith in, in, in what you can do uh, for the health of their employees and also for their costs. So I think, I think there's an underestimation right now of how much direct contracting is going on. Yeah, it's big. It's, it's something that needs to be tracked because it's a big part of our healthcare economy and of the drift away from the insurance companies into the direct model. That story's not being told properly, in my opinion. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, how do people find you and find the boot camp if they want to sign up? So the easiest place to find us is uh, accesshealthcaredirect.com. 
We also have a, a shorter and easier to remember website that's actually for one of our apps, but you can also get to us through that. It's ahdrx.com. And if people want to send email, they can send email to brianforestmd at gmail.com. Uh, and that's Forest with two R's. brianforestmd at gmail.com is probably the easiest way uh, to directly get me. Uh, I will warn people that uh, there are many days that my I get 200 unique emails. So sometimes it takes me a little while to get through to them, but I do eventually. Uh, so just be patient. Where else are you going to be able to get the private email to the George Washington of a movement? But this show, folks, that's the free bonus you get today. Um, thank you, Brian. If you could fly a banner over America with one message to Americans, what would that say? Wow, that's a tough question. I wish you would have prepared me for that one. You can talk your way until you figure it out. I think if we if we all persevere through flexible innovation, uh, we can improve the health care of all citizens. And there you go. Thank you again, Brian Forrest. We'll look forward to our next show with you. And when that study comes out, we hope we are right there in the middle of it. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Ron. Thank you for listening. You want to shake things up? There's two things you can do for us. One, go to primarycarecures.com for show notes and links to our guests. And number two, help us spotlight what's working in primary care by listening on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribing and leave us a review. It helps our megaphone more than you know. Until next episode.